Welcome to the Intentional Growth Podcast, the show that teaches you how to grow the value of a company with an end in mind. Host Ryan Tansom interviews top business leaders, authors, entrepreneurs, and other professionals who share their experience and expertise about buying, growing, and selling companies. Thanks for tuning in to the Intentional Growth Podcast. This is your host, Ryan Tansom, and I am super excited for this episode, which is episode 251, and we are going to be diving in to what it means to be a really good CEO by one of the industry's top experts. There's so many definitions of what a CEO is. In the lower market, we've got integrator, visionary, GM, president, and there's just all these definitions, and today we're going to unpack that and really understand what a CEO is, the job responsibilities of a CEO, and how that is different from the owner of a company and the position and role that an owner has. Joel Trammell has spent his career working with companies to show them what their CEOs can really do for the company if you have the right person trained well in the role. Joel has taken two companies from founding them to nine-figure acquisitions by Fortune 500 companies. One of the companies generated more than a 10 times return on the invested capital, and then the other software company that Joel founded delivered a 7x return to the investors within eight months. And he also has served as a board member and then a CEO of the network service provider Black Box Corporation, which is on the NASDAQ. And he's also the co-founder and managing partner of Lone Rock Technology, which is a private equity firm. Joel turned his experience into a book that he wrote called The CEO Tightrope, which helps owners navigate the CEO position. He has lived and breathed the life cycle of a business on multiple occasions and knows exactly what it takes to get a CEO working right, even if it's you. We'll navigate the five responsibilities that CEO cannot delegate and how to offload the rest of the responsibilities to the right staff, including an argument for using micro-training to ensure maximum retention and job success. The position of a CEO is a highly skilled and nuanced role and directly impacts your, your success as an owner and the business. And since you can't perform every role in your company as it scales, you'll be forced to make a tough call between working on your business or in it. And a strong CEO is the right solution to help you position your company for growth and yourself for less anxiety and stress. I enjoyed this episode so much that I have to confess that I actually sent this episode prior to this live release to current clients because it's so important and it's so timely with what so many people are dealing with right now. A couple main takeaways and then I'll kick it right off into the episode is I loved how Joel articulated the issues of dealing with hiring executives like a CFO, CIO, VP of sales, or any of those top rockstar A players that are going to truly take away the stress of running a company. How do you do that effectively if you're not the expert? And he has the best answer I've literally ever heard. And you're going to hear my excitement when we have that discussion. And then he talks about how decision making and the increase of effectiveness in decision making is like the grease on the skids that can accelerate and exponentially grow your organization. Literally one of my favorite episodes recently because I have clients that have amazing plans but they still have stress and anxiety because they don't have people that are owning the outcome and predicting the future correctly. Tune in if you want to figure out how to hire a rockstar bench 
learn how to be the CEO or hire a CEO to create the most amount of options, have a lot of fun, create a more valuable business, create wealth, and have a lot of choices for what you want to do with the business long term. Thanks for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy this episode with Joel. Sponsored by Arcona's Intentional Growth Digital Course. Ryan Tansom and Pat Hobby show you how to shift your mindset away from solving for annual income to focusing on strategies that create long-term value, giving you the freedom and choices to take control of the future destiny of your business. Accelerate your knowledge with 36 videos and dozens of exercises that combine decades of experience buying, growing, and selling companies. Learn more by going to arcona.io or visiting the show notes. Joel, how are you doing this morning? I'm doing great, Ryan. Good to visit um, with you. Yeah, I'm super excited. Uh, you and I had a brief chat uh, separately uh, prior to this, and I'm looking forward to to diving in because you there was a couple things that actually I had written down when we had talked that I was like, okay, I can't I can't wait for this. One is your background and your your you've lived and breathed the life cycle of businesses, and you also have uh, you got your your fingers in a publication that goes out, and you're huge on education, which aligns with everything that we do. And then you talked about your, your book that you'd written and the CEO white space. And that CEO white space just really hit home to me. So I'm looking forward to, to diving in. That uh, little brief bio didn't do justice. So why don't you give us uh, give the listeners a little bit of a background on how you got to where you are today and what you're doing? Well, so I uh, got an electrical engineering degree in college, thought I wanted to be a PhD and professor, took some graduate math courses, realized I wasn't interested in engineering anymore, but I love teaching. At the time, to get an MBA, they wanted you to take 60 hours of undergraduate business before you could start your MBA program. That was before the MBA programs got smart and started taking checks from whoever would write them. And, uh, you know, as an arrogant engineer, I wasn't going to take 60 hours of undergraduate business just to get in their MBA program. And so I said, well, I'll show them I'll start my own business. And pretty soon after that, I became unqualified to do anything else. So you better figure out a way to make it work. And that was uh, over 30 years ago. And and I've been fortunate to, uh, I married the right woman, was very helpful. And one of the businesses was really based on her technical prowess and accomplishments. And, uh, but I've built several that, uh, you know, sold for nice exits and uh, lets me think about uh, and talk about and teach on, you know, kind of how do you, how you do this thing. I'm in, I'm super excited to, to, cause there's, it's so like when you and I had talked prior, you know, the, the uh, show has been predominantly about buying, growing and selling companies and then all the different things that are part of it. And you have a book. Why don't you kind of just describe the book? Because I think there's two different angles we can take in this, which is, you know, value growth and the stories about, about the exits, but also like how, like what I think is very interesting is the, the CEO tightrope. And understanding that concept is just, I thought was very intriguing because I don't think a lot of people have articulated it the way that you have. Yeah. So it started, I was a chairman of what they call the Austin Technology Council. And, you know, a lot of young CEOs were coming up and I wanted to uh, give back. And so I started teaching a course for CEOs. And uh, because of my teaching background, that kind of felt natural. And then over time, as you develop the course, I'm like, okay, now there's a book here. I kind of get the outline and, and, and see how it's going to develop. And I thought when I started writing the book that I would find out that, you know, Harvard had a system for being CEO and Stanford had a system for being CEO. And I would come in as the practitioner and tell them, wow, they're too academic. Uh, but what I really found was nobody has really thought about the challenge of being CEO and particularly 
as it becomes a real job and scales in an organization. There's certainly a lot of literature that's available now uh, around startup ventures and how you get a product to MVP and a lot mm -hmm. of the technical aspects of kind of getting a business going. But what I really see is I really see three stages in most businesses from zero to 25 employees, any good competent business person, project manager type can kind of run that out of their back pocket. And they kind of know what everybody's doing. And, and while there's a CEO job, a lot of the CEO job happens in your own head, because typically in that case, not only are you the CEO, but you're the EVP of sales, you're the EVP of marketing, you're the CFO. Maybe you got one technical guy who kind of handles the product side for you and then you're your partner. But, but so there's not a lot of communication that has to happen. There's not a lot of strategizing. You just sit there and think for a few minutes and you make all the decisions. If you can get two minutes, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You have a conversation with yourself and everything's wonderful. Uh, as you go from 25 to about 100 employees, though, if you're doing it correctly, uh, what you need to do is give away each of those executive VP that that running a group, whether it's sales, marketing, product, finance, customers, HR, you need to hand that responsibility off to somebody who focuses on that all day, every day, such that when you wake up at about 100, 150 people, somewhere in there, typically, uh, you, there's a full-time CEO role. And that full-time CEO role then becomes, involves a lot coordinating those key functions because they're focused all day, every day on sales, but making sure they're aligned with marketing and product and finance and hiring and your customers uh, becomes the real CEO role. So what I love about this, and, and, you, and this probably gets into the white space, but I want to I want to uh, lay some foundation work here too, as we as we would dive into these concepts and how to actually do this. One is, uh, what is your definition of a CEO? Because there's you got CEO, founder, entrepreneur, business owner. Some some of them are interchangeable to uh, to some people. Some of them are wildly different depending on who you're asking. So that's one question. And then the other question that I have is that how like as we're about to dive into all this stuff, Joel is understanding the lens of value of enterprise value versus actual just you know top line revenue. I know we're going to get into this because you talked about hiring people that you don't know their skill set. So I want to table that for a second because I think there's a lot behind that. But your definition of CEO compared to the other words that I had uh, thrown out there. Yeah, obviously, you know, you start an organization, you're a founder. Uh, if you have a significant uh, percentage, you can call yourself an owner. That's great. But like I said, from from zero to 25 employees, there's really not much of a CEO job. And so, you know, in those small stage companies, you, you may call yourself a CEO, but that's just a very different role than the CEO job at scale. And that that's really where I think when I say CEO, I'm talking about somebody that's running something at scale where they have other executives taking care of the principal functions of the organization. And they're not just a one man band. Uh, the analogy I use when I teach my course is, are you Santa and his elves, where Santa does all the fun stuff and the elves are just there to help? Or are you running it like an orchestra conductor, where your job's to maximize the performance of the organization and you're there to lead? Now, you may be a very good musician, but you don't jump into the third chair violin and start playing in the middle of the performance, right? And so CEO is an organizational role. Uh, it is not an individual contributor performer role. And I love that. that. That was very helpful. And I like the analogies too is, and then CEO in your definition does not need to own any of the equity. 
is that does not necessarily have a, a major equity stake in the business. No, not at all. I've, uh, you know, the, you, you have hired CEOs sometimes, uh, and obviously, you know, in most cases, you want to give them some equity stake to, mm -hmm. to have some uh, in the game, but they do not have to be a majority or even significant shareholder. I bring that up because I, I we've seen so many times, Joel, that the so many entrepreneurs and business owners see how I even do it and conflate the two, <laughs> but they conflate their role, their management role with the equity of their business. I was, I was actually a guest on a podcast recently and I asked the guy, I was like, well, what do you want? And he's like, I want to be able to take vacation. And you kind of going through all these things. I'm like, you just conflated your job with your financial holdings, your equity and your asset. He's like, huh? And I'm like, so there's just no way of like, people need to like extract those two and say, how, what is the job that you're doing versus the equity? And I see people get that conflated a lot. Yeah. And probably the most common thing you see with founders is uh, they have an area of specialization. That's why they got into it. Maybe they're a super great technologist. Uh, I see a lot of that. Uh, but as, and as the organization from zero to 25, they're handling everything and that's great. But then as the organization grows, they want to still be the technologist, but they don't want anybody else making decisions in the organization. So they have trouble giving up the CEO role to do the chief technology role. And, uh, you know, now you still, CEO has somebody he, he has to please, right? He reports to a board. And mm -hmm. so ultimate authority still rests, uh, you know, with a board of directors. Uh, and so often that's the best way to solve that problem is, hey, your job in the company is to be the chief technologist. We're going to go hire a CEO that understands what being a CEO is, but you've still got a position on the board. And if you have a majority ownership position, obviously you still control the shots uh, at the end of the day. But you need to be in a role where you're going to wake up and want to do what that job requires. And the CEO job is an organizational job that requires dealing with people is your primary method of operation as opposed to things. And a lot of founders like dealing with things, be it spreadsheets, computer code, plumbing installations, whatever the case may be. So what is the biggest challenge that you see with people that are founders understanding where they're at and what needs to be done and then where their journey of their role evolves. I mean, what are the biggest challenges? Yeah, I think it's it, the giving up controls, number one, right? Uh, a lot of people become entrepreneurs because they don't play well with others, uh, let's say, <laughs> right? They, <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. they have this, you know, inherent bias. I mean, I felt the way I describe it to people the, 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 is I wanted to be in control of my own fate, I didn't want somebody to walk into my office one day and go, hey, we just laid off, you know, half the people. Sorry, you know, get your things and, and leave. That just felt like, I, you know, working in a large corporation felt like I didn't have control of my fate. And so I wanted to have that control. And so a lot of entrepreneurs start their businesses for that. And when they have some success, the last thing they want to do is give up that control that they feel like to somebody else. But again, if you really understand the CEO role, I think you can put the right people in that role and still have ultimate control of the business, you know, and, and so don't, you know, kind of conflate the two because a CEO doing the job right doesn't walk in and just start mandating a bunch of crazy decisions that you wouldn't agree with, right? I mean, that's not what the CEO's role is. You, you can be CEO and not be the chief visionary for the organization. As CEO, you have to understand and, and own the vision and promote the vision but you don't have to be the visionary. I mean, a perfect example, the company I founded with my wife, uh, she was a 4.0 PhD in electrical engineering from the University of Texas, had done- <laughs> yeah, uh, Smart you know, couple there. <laughs> well, yeah, she's the brains, <laughs> no question. Uh, and so she had done, you know, kind of foundational research in, in understanding how to manage wide area networks at a time when 
Very few people had even operated wide area networks at scale. And uh, so she had the vision. And, you know, we started the company and nine years later when we sold it, we were still executing that vision. I didn't have to create that vision. I didn't have to uh, expand that vision, but I did have to own the vision and be able to talk about it and explain it to everyone from the most technical people to the most junior people and customers that we had. So what I find, I love that. And so what is your definition of the roles or the duties that a CEO should have? Why don't you yeah. describe that? Yeah, there are five things that I think a CEO has to do. Obviously, the CEO gets to decide what they do, and, and often they'll do many other things than these. But these are things that I think you can't delegate to somebody else. So one is what I call owning the vision. Again, it's not creating the vision, but it, it's taking ownership of it and being able to explain it to everybody from the most uh, sophisticated person in your industry or business that you deal with to the intern that you bring in uh, in the summer. Some people would call that strategy. Well, strategy is a part of that, but I think it's bigger than that. It's mission mm-hmm. values are very mm-hmm. important. Uh, getting people in the organization that identify with those mission vision values, critically important. The CEO kind of shepherd that. Then the CEO has to provide the resources for the organization. Typically, those are capital and human resources. And both of those critically important. You know, you can't run out of money. That's the CEO's responsibility. You can't delegate that. You know, you're ultimately responsible for that. And I think most CEOs don't take near enough active role in the human resources side and uh, making sure that everyone you hire is buying into that vision you have uh, for the organization. Uh, And then once you get going and, and have some people, well, then we talk about building the culture, right? What culture do we want? And I use the analogy, I've never been a someone who liked the family, you know, businesses like a family uh, analogy that that doesn't, you know, I, I have some relatives that would work that I'd be happy to have work with me. And then there's some that, you know, I wish they maybe weren't my relatives, but I can't control that. Right. <laughs> yeah, you know? exactly. Uh, and, and so I always talked about it as a community, you know, businesses, community, people, you want to make an attractive community that people want to join, but people can leave the community, right. If things are, aren't appropriate for them. And so I think of the CEO as kind of the mayor and police chief of the community, right? Mm-hmm. They're, they're setting the standards. They're setting what people can get away with. And as you get, you know, 50, 100 employees, you got to start talking about that because it, it zero to 10 or 20 employees, you don't have to talk about culture because they're going to observe you every day in the operations. And so no reason to talk about it because the only thing you could do is confuse people if you said you believe something and then you acted in a different way. <laughs> yeah, you got bigger problems, bigger problems to begin with as an individual if you got that going on. <laughs> That's right. And so, but when you get, you know, 30, 50, 100 employees and now in the virtual world too, you're not engaging with people as much. That's when you got to start quantifying and writing down your culture, talking about your culture, telling the stories, uh, so on and so forth. Uh, and then, you know, CEO's ultimate decision maker in the organization. But it goes beyond that. You don't want to be in a situation where the CEO is making every decision. You want to be in a situation where decisions are being made at the right level of the organization. And the better you are at doing that, the faster your organization will run because decisions are effectively the fuel of an organization's engine. And so every time you make a decision, you're putting more fuel on the fire. Every time you don't make a decision, you're starving the engine. People are just sitting around waiting, right? And so you got to teach the organization what their authority is, what their responsibilities are, so that they know exactly, very clearly what decisions they can make. And then when there is a decision that needs to involve you as the CEO, that they're escalating that decision to you very quickly. And, and then you hopefully you're making that decision very quickly as mm-hmm. well. 
And then the final piece, everybody knows the CEO is responsible for delivering performance. That's great, but a lot of CEOs aren't very specific about what that means. A lot of CEOs are like a football coach that walks into the locker room and goes, hey, guys, go win. And if you did that, you know, the right guard would look at you and go, coach, uh, I don't know how to win, but I know how to hit people. Do you, who do you want me to hit, right? And so what, is, so what does a football team do? They develop a playbook such that on every snap of the ball, the 11 mm-hmm. people on the field know exactly what they're going to go do know exactly what their objective is. And if they knock down the left tackle, then he's going to go try to hit the linebacker, right? Uh, Most organizations aren't clear on even what good performance is for all their employees, and they haven't bothered to create a playbook for it. And so those five things, own the vision, provide the resources, build the culture, make decisions, deliver performance, are what I kind of think about as the key roles and responsibilities of the CEO in any organization. I I think it's fantastic and how how well you broke those down and I want to pull the, the the sports analogy too for a second because I I think this will lead into the the second question I asked you a little bit ago which is how do you manage some how do you manage parts of the organization that you're not that you're not familiar with or a technical expert in so um, so using the sports analogy the coach knows all the coach develops the playbook and manages the playbook and knows what the win should look like, especially who their opponent is. So starting at the very top, Joel, and then getting into the functional areas and which was one of the key points on the interview questionnaire that we were, uh, that I was reviewing is what I have seen in, in the last, I don't know how many years is that the, uh, the big issue with founders is because they've never been through a sale, they don't know what the end win actually means. They don't yeah. know what sport yeah. they're playing. Right. So <laughs> really, like, are we football, tennis, is it soccer? <laughs> what do we what is actually getting measured here? So what they what the owner, the original founder, it's revenue, employee count, net income, and just growth percentages. And then at the end, when they think that, you know, as the buzzer's about to go off, they're like, wait a second, it's not that it's actually enterprise value and equity value. And you're going, like, whoa. And so if we start there and then go, okay, well, you need to you need to know what game you're playing and what means success, but then you need to translate what you understand about the game and the strategies and then hire the coach, hire the team. So does that, I know I want to layer above your, yeah, there, uh, that, there are about, question. there are about three questions in there. That, uh, <laughs> I know it's more of like a story. I'm like, man, what do I, what do we do about this? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, so one, one question that you started out with that I think, you know, stay with the sports analogy. One thing people assume is that the head football coach, let's say Bill Belichick knows everything about everybody's position on the team, knows exactly everything everybody should do at all times. And is the, expert, if you will, at all facets of football. You know, Bill Belichick didn't even play football in the NFL. (laughs) Now, is he knowledgeable about football? Absolutely, he's knowledgeable about football. Is he the best offensive coordinator in the world? Probably not. Is he the best defensive coordinator? Is he the best play caller? Is he the best any of those things? No, that's not his role. His role is to find the people who can be the best at those coordinate a consistent philosophy such that his off what his offense does, his defense does, his special teams does, his recruiting does, all coordinate together to execute a vision, right? And so because he does that very well, but 
you know, he doesn't know how to play quarterback in the NFL. He's never done it. You know, if Tom Brady makes a bad throw, they've got a quarterback coach who's standing on the sidelines, who probably was a former NFL quarterback who studied how to throw a football extensively. And he says, hey, Tom, you dropped your elbow on that one. That's why that ball sailed 10 yards over the receiver's head. So a lot of people get confused as founders because they say, I don't, I don't know anything about finance. I can't, I can't manage that finance guy. Well, first of all, you need to learn some basics of finance. You certainly need to be able to read a P&L. But no matter what you do, you're never going to know more about finance than somebody that went to school for finance, trained for finance, spent 20 years in finance. That's not the rule. I've spent my whole career managing people who knew far more about their job than, than they did. Uh, so we have to go through a coaching process. And that coaching process is setting a set of goals and objectives that we mutually agreed upon is success for that organization and then holding people accountable. But people don't understand what that word accountable, they think it means you just fire people if they don't perform. Holding people accountable, I, I like the term objective reality. So when you hear holding somebody accountable, what you should hear is holding people to objective reality. That's your job as the coach is to say, hey, Tom, now the receiver didn't run the wrong route there. You overthrew by 10 yards. That's what really happened. Because all of us as humans, natural tendency is it's never our fault, right? We never, want to deal. Right? <laughs> we never want to deal with objective reality. We want to hinge, oh, well, you know, it could have been somebody else if we just closed that deal, if this, if that, right? And so your job as the coach and the best CEOs, you know, hold people accountable but by just consistently making everybody in the organization deal with objective reality and not letting people slide. I think, yeah, I think you in all of that just answered a lot of the questions. And, and like, because I think, the challenge is, is like, especially if you've grown a business from a smaller organization to a larger one, and you're moving along the continuum of the zero to 25 employees up to 150, or they're, yeah, it's hard to deal with objective reality when you're having the conversations in your head when you're at 24 yeah. employees, yeah. right? Yeah, That's it right. was because it was the 4th of July. No one was going to, you know, do that deal anyways, right? But as you evolve into this, and then understanding that you have to learn too, because if you've never done that, and it, well, I've I've had other interviews, Joel, where I interviewed uh, Tom Herman, uh, who is Todd Herman, who's got the uh, all, the alter ego effect, talking about like the the fake until you make it, the imposter syndrome, and there's this issue that I've seen where like you get to this point where you're like, I can actually start to admit to others that I don't know all these things. Right, because it's actually working. What the business? The business is actually making profit, and now I need to. Now I need to study at least the basics of how the game is played. What is? What are we solving for? And then how to hire the team? And it, I just don't think there's anywhere where people have acknowledged that and giving the safe space to say, "Hey, this is how we learn." And then you're going to have to hire these players that are going to be smarter and potentially more intimidating. But it's okay because you're the owner. And, and, and again, you know, Bill Belichick doesn't, isn't the expert on every part of playing football and recruiting football, okay? Uh, if you make me CEO of your company tomorrow, okay, I've got 30 years' experience being CEO. I've written a book about it. I teach about it. I think I'm a pretty good CEO. I think I know something about the job. You make me CEO of your company, and even if it was in enterprise software, which is kind of my area of expertise, I am unqualified the day I step into the job to be CEO, of that company. I don't know near all the things I need to be successful. I would need to know all the employees. I would certainly need to have relationships with my executive team. I would need to understand the customers, you know, deeply. Uh, I would have to 
understand the goals and aspirations of our shareholders and stuff. I'm not qualified in the sense uh, to, 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 to be CEO at that point. No one's qualified when they first start, but it is a continuous learning process where at least if you understand these are the things you need to be focused on, that you keep getting better every day. And uh, I think that is the, you know, a lot of founders think, you know, they see some CEOs running some big company and they think they, oh boy, they must know everything, you know. They know everything about finance. They know everything. No, we don't know shit about all that stuff. <laughs> that, well, yeah, tell, tell them the objective reality, right? Yes. <laughs> so, what do you, what should, what should an, a founder do? Is there like a process or like a set of questions that you've run across in uh, your your tenure that a founder should do to determine whether they should be the CEO or whether they should hire someone to be the CEO? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I think, you know, number one, I would go back to the concept of, do you like dealing with things, be that, you know, products, customers, whatever, more than you like dealing with people as an organizational group? Because that's the fundamental difference, even when you move into management, but certainly when you move into the CEO role, is that everything you do is only going to happen through other people really doing it. You know, as CEO, There's I don't no AI it's, system. You can just like deploy yeah. all your executives on yeah. purpose. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, I'm the CEO of Delta airlines. I don't fly a plane. I don't service a customer. I don't serve drinks. I don't, you know, build a plane. I don't do anything, <laughs> anything. Right. Um, and, you know, so if you don't think you can wake up every day and think first about the people and the organization and how to make them more productive. If your first thought is I like flying airplanes, uh, then you're probably not cut out to be the CEO. And that's not what you want to do. Uh, and that's fine. I mean, again, no problem. Not everybody, I mean, I was 35 before I realized that not everybody in my organization wanted to be CEO. I thought everyone did. They just hadn't gotten there yet, but then it finally hit, hit me. Oh wait, not everybody's like me. Right. That was kind of a revelation, but a lot of people, again, think they need to be CEO to not give up control. And so well, that, that I was just going to say, yeah, because like you you said that you wanted to be CEO and you thought everybody did. And I think that there's a, like at least half owners out there that don't want to be and are scared to death to tell others that they don't want to be. <laughs> right, right. That's right. And they shouldn't be. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that. And you can, uh, you know, certainly bring in CEOs that will be effective. And, you know, there have been other models too. I mean, I think the other most common model is the traction model that Gino Wickman put forward. It's kind of the same thing. It says you bring in this implementer who's, we're going to call them, you know, something else, but they're really the CEO and right, you kind right. of push the the founder to the side and he kind of a bit, it becomes the visionary and, you know, doesn't deal with running the business. And that works at small scale. That doesn't scale up as you get to 50, mm-hmm. 100, 200 mm-hmm. employees. At some point that model breaks because you've just created a different bottleneck. Uh, but that's the way some people handle it. Uh, so, you know, sometimes people will bring in a COO, you know, the military has an interesting structure in that they have a commanding officer and an executive officer, and then everybody else reports through the executive officer. Whereas most companies, you know, have a CEO and then the CEO has six or eight or 10 re- direct reports, right? But the military set it up for obvious reasons. If the commanding officer was disabled or something in combat, that they had somebody that knew er- kind of everything that was going on. Hmm. Almost so like that's president a, and vice president kind of. Yeah, I mean, yeah that, that's kind of a setup that can work uh, sometimes as well for the right organization where you kind of have a junior CEO that, mm-hmm. that, that knows what's going on and you have a way to train them and kind of give them more and more responsibility. Then at some point you just step away 
and say, okay, I'm not CEO anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I can see what they're doing. And so that's, that's maybe a middle ground to maintain control while still, uh, uh, you know, uh, giving an opportunity to to hand off the CEO role to test it out, right? I mean, and like I think it was in uh, it was either in Traction or Rocket Fuel, one of Gino's books. And I've just from personal experience and observation is that it very rarely works out the first time with hiring right. a CEO. Yeah, I don't know if you got any comments on that, or is that just kind of the way it is? <laughs> well, I think most people don't understand what the CEO does. So what happens is they tend to hire. Uh, you know, if they if they have a sales background, for instance, they tend to hire the best sales guy uh, for to be CEO. So and true. again, that's not you. Know, in my five jobs, sales was not one of the five jobs of the CEO. If you're still doing sales, you're not performing that job as the CEO. You're performing that job. You're still the EVP of sales, which you may be wearing multiple hats. That's fine. May need to at the stage of business you're in. But I always I like I, I get you know business owners with 10, 20 employees. I get them and I say, draw out the org chart, what it would look like at 100, okay, where you've got full executives in every position. Now, tell me which one of those jobs, in addition to the CEO job, are you currently doing? And they'll say, oh, you know, I'm not doing all those. I've got a VP of sales or something. I said, do you know every deal your company's working? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, then you're the VP of sales. Okay. <laughs> yeah, and it. so you'll find out they, you know, then they fill in about five boxes, you know, yeah, I'm really the VP of sales. I'm really the VP of marketing. I'm really the CFO. And then I've got some other people, junior people doing some things. Right. Can they even, when you, when you have those situations, can they even imagine what it's like to have a hundred person company? Do you think it's people's ability to dream or understand or experience what that is to even get there? Yeah, I think they can, but I think a lot of people hadn't thought about the implications. Uh, you know, it's just one thing when you touch and talk to everybody and personally know everybody in your organization uh, and see them every day. Uh, and then, you you know, at 20, that works. At 100, I'm having trouble remembering some names. I certainly don't know what people are working on. At 200, I'm, you know, I'm going to name badges, right? Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. Name badges were invented for CEOs to not look stupid because some <laughs> employee walks in, they can't remember their name, right? <laughs> so like, do you think that there's something to do with like the fear of brand reputation or individual reputation of why people, like why people hold on with a death grip to their operations like that? And a, a, like a way of like stark contrast is like, if I was a founder and I've got a service-based business and all of a sudden I'm like, I'm so concerned about what everybody has to think about my reputation. But if I went in and bought a business in the same industry, I would be looking at churn like, oh, it's a 10% churn. Oh, bummer. You know what I mean? Like yeah. like with with the complete objective, like, hey, we're still making money. We're doing this. But if it was me who founded, I'd be like, well, 10% of the people hate me every year. I don't know if that kind of jargon or that mental game has anything to do with it. Yeah, I think. You know, often the people who found businesses are very good at doing something and they feel that other people won't live up to their standards and other people won't be as good at doing what you're an expert at as you are. Uh, But again, that goes back to that objective reality. If you're holding people accountable, if you're forcing objective reality, hopefully you build training uh, for every new employee to bring them up to standards, give them the chance to practice and improve and you set the bar. What the problem is, a lot of founders and, and owners, they hire somebody new, give them very little training, give them very little opportunity to learn, 
and then am sh- are shocked that the person didn't do the job as well as they who've been doing it for 20 years did the job. Well, yeah, that's not going to work. You're going to be very unsuccessful hiring people if that's what you think. You need to micro train everybody you hire. So because otherwise, if you don't micro train them up front, then after three months, you're like, I got to micromanage these people. I got to tell them everything to do because they don't know what to do. But if you make the investment up front and say every new employee, we're going to micro train, we're going to make sure they know everything about their job. Then if they fail, I know the problem's the employee. The problem is in most organizations, they hire somebody, don't give them any training. Then three months later, they're like, well, I got to micromanage this person because they're not delivering the results I wanted. Well, I don't know where the problem is. The problem may not be the employee. The problem may be you haven't given them a chance to learn what they needed to learn. That was micro training versus micromanagement. Huge takeaway there. I like that a lot. What do you, what do, you do then it, like for the CEO who doesn't know a good CFO or a good CIO? And both, I bring up both of those two positions, Joel, because I had an outsource man, IT company where the virtual CIO would go in there. And now we've got a fractional CFO services. And what I have noticed is the biggest problem is you got a lot of service providers that slap on a CIO or CFO, you know, marketing thing. And the owners don't know, go like, well, you know, numbers, you must be good. And so there's this problem of like, okay, how do I, like we hired two CFOs when we had our family business because we like to have beers with them. I mean, they they knew what, so we, we didn't know how to judge whether they were good at their job or not. So I know you had some comments on that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the biggest way to judge any area of expertise, uh, what, how does expertise show up? It shows up in being able to predict what is likely to happen in the future. Okay. So if I'm an expert in sales, I can give good forecasts. Okay. Because I deeply understand the sales process. I deeply understand the customer. And so number one measurement for me, for a sales executive is accuracy of their forecast. Okay. Uh, For a CFO, number one measurement for me is accuracy of their cash forecast. Well, when I say that, some CFO is going to go, yeah, but I don't know how much sales is going to sell. And I say, okay, we make that X, okay? And whatever X is, then show me the formula of what the cash is going to be, and we'll plug in X at the end of the quarter, what it turned out to be. Show me that you knew exactly, you know, what the cash was going to be. Uh, And a lot of people think, oh, that's easy. Cash forecasting is easy. Boy, I wish it was. Uh, You know, you ought to have a six-month view at least uh, of cash in your business under Three, at least three different scenarios. What if we sell nothing? What if we sell 50% of what we think we're going to sell? What if we're going to sell 75% of what we sell? You know, and then obviously, what if we sell 100% of what we think we're going to sell and doing that? So it's often the ability to predict the future that's the thing you need to be measuring on. Because if they really know what they're doing, they won't be accurate 100% of the time. Nobody can predict the future uh, perfectly, but they'll be a lot more accurate than people who don't know what they're doing. That was probably the cleanest and clearest way I've heard anybody describe that because how you describe that, Joel, like I I think about all the situations I'm dealing with with clients right now is the anxiety never goes away when people hire their executives because they're not good at, those executives are not good at predicting the future. Therefore, 
the the buck still goes to the owner saying, you know what, I'm still got all, I'm still living in the same perpetual anxiety because the they're having to forecast everything because they're the only ones that can still see into the future and they don't have anybody else that can actually own the outcome. That's right. Yeah. The the the, the CEO manages the future. And, and people don't understand that. Almost every other position in an organization spends most of their time dealing with problems today or problems from yesterday. They're very present-oriented and recent past-oriented in their actions, right? The CEO, you're the bus driver. How much time does the bus driver spend looking in the rearview mirror? Oh, you check it occasionally. You hit something and you go, I wonder what that was. Oh, yeah, that was a pothole back there. But you don't stare at the pothole because there's not anything you can do about it at that point, right? What are you trying to do? You're trying to look hundreds of yards down the road so you avoid the next pothole. Mm-hmm. And so the CEO job done correctly, you should be spending like 80% of your time, what I call managing the future, anticipating problems, seeing where there are issues, trying to avoid the potholes, and only 20% of your problem dealing with kind of the issue of the day or or playing whack-a-mole in the organization. Mm-hmm. Sometimes those problems come up and you got to deal with them and, and you're the only one that can handle it. Okay, great. But if you're running a good organization, you're spending 80% of your time managing the future. I uh, I interviewed this gentleman years ago. I think it was Jeff Fritz, um, the 100-hour work year or something, I think it was. It's been a, years ago, so I don't remember. But he he was talking about hiring that CEO. You got to have them 80% of you. And then it's your first bottleneck. I mean, if you go to like manufacturing, like the goal, you're trying to eliminate those bottlenecks. Yep. And when you're thinking about like, and I've, I've witnessed in companies, depending on the industry and everything, obviously, but the, the main, one of the kind of common themes of when can you afford to hire this person? So you're going to have like this, this slow evolution, depending on your growth rate. And so like kind of my thoughts behind this that I've seen, Joel, is you go, okay, well, owner that goes from zero to 25 employees are finally making a six figure salary after five years of risk or whatever the problem is. And they're going, Hey, now I've got this and I want to reward myself, take some distributions. And now the lifestyle has creeped up and going, okay. Yeah. And cause everybody tells me I should hire this integrator or CEO. I'm like, well, where's the 200 grand going to come from? That's right. <laughs> so like, That's right. how have you dealt with or seen people deal with the financial implications of that? And well, that's why that's why it goes back to so important to have these predictive uh, measures. Because if I have a good view that I'm confident of cash flow, I'm confident of revenues that's going to come in the door. I can make an educated decision. But most organizations I walk into, they say, "Oh, I'm thinking about hiring a CEO," you know, but I'm not sure I can afford the two hundred thousand. I say, "Well, what's cash going to be next month?" And they go, "I don't know." You know, I mean, it could be this, could be that. I mean, most businesses no. in America from a performance perspective, we're measured by how much cash is in the account at the end of the month. Okay. I know. know. And so they're not making any plans. So until you get those kind of things in place where you have an accurate cash forecast, you have an accurate revenue forecast you could believe in, uh, you're not probably going to be able to make the jump and no good CEO is going to take the job either if you don't have those things in place. Because the last thing a CEO wants to walk into is, oh, we can't make payroll Friday, you know? Oh, well, why didn't you tell me that before you? You told me everything was great. Well, we had to know? give you your signing bonus, so now we have no cash. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> is there a, you know, I've seen good bonus programs for CEOs. You got some, an, you know, wages, annual cash bonus based on, you know, metrics for this year, and then a longer term phantom stock plan tied to different events. I mean, is there anything special or unique you've seen? Well, so I hate incentive compensation. 
Uh, I was in an event that Jim Collins uh, spoke at one time and somebody asked him about incentive compensation and he started banging the podium and saying, you can't turn the right, uh, the wrong people into the right people with money. Oh, uh, interesting. That uh, the purpose of money is to do no harm really. It's to, uh, when you find somebody who's the right person who has that neurotic desire to, to excel and, and be great at what they do, you use money to keep them. You don't use money to incent them. And so, yes, you're going to have to pay CEOs a lot of money. Uh, you're going to have to give them the opportunity to make uh, uh, good returns. But for the CEO particularly, I think, you know, setting a, a reasonable salary, not uh, something that's uh, ridiculous, but a reasonable salary, depending on the size of your business, your industry, mm -hmm. uh, making that straight cash compensation, and then having an equity uh, stake that, that, you know, if they do great, that that the, obviously that equity stake is going to be worth a lot more mm -hmm. is the way I want the CEO focused. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, now, if you're a private business and the equity stakes very, un, uh, you know, illiquid and unlikely maybe to be liquid anytime, that's a little different situation. Maybe you have to do some things with, with cash, depending, mm -hmm. you know, if you're running, some people run businesses just to throw off cash. And if that's your model, great, but then you're probably going to have to compensate the CEO in the same way. Yep. But if you're building a business to grow it and sell it, as I think most of your audience probably hopes to do, uh, then you, you know, the CEO should be willing to bet somewhat on the come, mm -hmm. uh, and you know, maybe even particular potentially invest. I mean, I, you know, I, I look at CEO opportunities occasionally, and I'm always if if I think it's a good opportunity for me, I want to put some money at play because I'm willing to bet on myself. You know, yeah, right? And yeah, that's a that's a. Yeah, you can't underestimate what you just said there because I mean the, to that that'll really filter out who's potentially bet, like believes in the future of the business too. That's right. Um, well, question for you because I got a lot of clients currently dealing with this where they there's the question of build the strategy, then hire the, and then go recruit the CEO or recruit the CEO and then have them build the strategy and then manage to it. And the, 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 some of the context behind that, Joel, is kind of the the intentional growth framework that we that we created is. Hey, once you're done, once you understand the kind of the game, now understand the value of your business, build the financial forecast, all the stuff that you talked about. Then it's like, okay, are we, do we believe in our strategies, right? Do we believe in how we're going to go from 10 million to 20 million over the next four years? Well, maybe not so much. Maybe that individual, like you said, is more of the engineer type or the salesperson. So this whole strategic planning is outside of their comfort zone. So the question is, you got the, you got the numbers. Do you go build some plan or comp plan to then go hire a CEO to then help drive that strategic planning process? Or do you go through strategic planning process and say, okay, here's the, here's what, here's where we're going and why, and then have them manage it. Yeah. I think you could do both processes, but just because somebody's a CEO doesn't mean they're the best strategic planner uh, in the world. Uh, you know, you can find people who are strategy consultants and good ones that understand that's a process that people can walk through. If you don't mm -hmm. feel comfortable with it, I, I would not depend on the CEO for, for coming in and creating the strategy. You know, in my businesses, I've often had somebody in my executive team who was the chief strategy officer who spent all day, every day thinking about those, what new products are we going to introduce? What mm -hmm. different markets should we go to? And that was not necessarily me. Again, I've got to own that vision and, and, facilitate and, and, you know, I can, uh, I'm a big believer that your, you know, your strategy ought to boil down to a one page sheet that mm -hmm. has your, your mission and vision at the top has your values on one side and has four to six key strategic objectives that are clearly measurable 
looking out two to three years. Mm-hmm. And that's all you need in most organizations. If you make mm-hmm. it, you know, I mean, I've dealt with uh, dealt with one CEO that, you know, we started talking about, oh, well, that's in the strategic plan. That's in, so I'm like, can I see the strategic plan? And he pulled out a, you know, 17 tab Excel spreadsheet with full 500 entries, you know, and I'm like, no, that's not a strategic plan. That's a task okay. list. Uh, yeah, that's a task list. And none of your employees are ever going to, you know, this is not helping anybody. So I have a one-page PowerPoint slide that I put up in every business I run that says, here's the strategic plan. Mm-hmm. It has mission, vision, values, four or five strategic objectives that we're going to hit in the next two or three years. That's the strategy, guys. Go execute it. Um, I love it. So there's uh, an odd question, which is one of the questions that was on the list, uh, the sheet that I got from, uh, I think it was your marketing manager, of, well, it's a good idea to hire an oddball. Mm-hmm. Is that, was that the right way of wording the question? And I was like, that is a, such an interesting, I'd love, I'm, I'm super curious on why that's a thing. Well, so what I argue is if you do a good job with your culture, okay, and build a very strong culture, then you have access to a wide range of people and oddballs will be fine because your culture will influence the person. If you have a weak culture, bad culture, then you can't hire oddballs. You got to hire people who kind of will stay in line because your culture is not doing anything to help you. Back to the sports analogy, New England Patriots, great example, right? Some very talented player bombs out at one team. You hear, oh, he's a trouble in the clubhouse. He's a problem. You know, they the New England Patriots pick him up. Suddenly he's an all-star wide receiver catching touchdown passes, you know, and you never hear any problems. Why? Because they have a very strong culture. Now, sometimes it doesn't work. Sometimes people bomb out in New England just like they bomb out other places. Mm-hmm. But when it, but they are able to use a wider range of talent because of their strong culture than teams that don't have strong cultures are able to use. So because the word culture is just kind of like strategy where you <laughs> yeah. ask a thousand people, you're going to need a thousand answers. Right. Um, because you've got such a clear definition of how these organizations work with people. What is your definition of a culture and how do you or can you me- measure it? Um, you can measure the impact of it is the way I would say it. So culture to me, um, is the things that get rewarded in an organization, uh, and early stage that comes directly from the founder. I mean, it's, it's whatever you value and however you treat people. And if you, you know, like people who dress in fancy suits more than you like people who dress in blue jeans and t-shirts, that's the culture, okay? Uh, and those <laughs> people are going to get, get rewarded, right? Now, as you get bigger, it gets, you know, it gets often uh, more subtle. And so then you say, how do I measure it? Well, a good culture has high productivity, high employee engagement. And so, you know, the Gallup Q12 survey is the one I've typically used in my career. I think they do a great job of capturing uh, employee engagement. Uh, that you know, there's a lot of data behind it. They've done millions of them. They can show you how you compare to other groups in your industry. Uh, and it's really a uh, task list for good management. You know, questions like, you know, have, have, have you received praise for doing good work in the last seven days in your organization? You know, well, that kind of tells you what you need to do. <laughs> okay. And if you're scoring mm-hmm. low on that, hey, we need to get some recognition out to, to the team on a regular basis. Uh, and so, yeah, you can't, maybe that's not measuring directly the culture, uh, but it's measuring the impact of the culture on the employees. Because if you mm-hmm. have a bad culture, you're not going to be productive. You're going to have a lot of issues within the employees. They're going to spend more time talking about the challenges you have than getting their job done. 
So using that definition, what, like let's say, because I, I remember doing this with our company, I've watched a lot of our clients go through it too, where someone's trying to hire a CEO. So let's say they kind of, they've got the foundation and the education based on what you just described and say, okay, okay, now it's time to hire someone. And they've got a bunch of candidates and I'm curious of what is the the right process and the for timeline and the amount of work that should be going into hiring the right person to make sure that the CEO aligns with your culture that you might not have identified, like your preferences, like, right. Is it, are you blue jeans or are you, you know, pinstripe suit? Like, <laughs> so that's a lot of the get to know you, but how do you align the technical abilities or the fit of the CEO and the culture as you're going through a hiring process? Yeah. So I, when I, hire anybody. Uh, and typically in my career, it's been hiring executives and, and, uh, and CEOs. Uh, but, but, but I think hiring anybody, uh, especially in a management role, there, there are several kind of key categories I look for. So, you know, I look for a leadership category and, and that involves questions around, Hey, you know, if you take this job, who's going to want to come work, who that you've worked with before is going to want to come follow you. Okay. And I'm looking for names. Okay. I mean, if somebody supposedly claims they've been this great leader who's had all these great results, they ought to have a line of people want to come work with them again, because there aren't that many great leaders and great results. Right. Yeah, and so you, you, you know, often with execs, they'll stumble, right. They'll go, well, yeah, they're, Oh, I'm sure there are a bunch of people. So many people, probably. so many people, yeah. Joel. Yeah, yeah. Look at my yeah. LinkedIn. There's 4,000. Yeah. And I'm like, <laughs> okay, give me three names that I can call right now. And that say they'll want to come, you know, and, and often that, boy, you, you learn the leadership question right there, right? Uh, the management question, you know, I'm going to say, you know, look, you're now a CEO in charge of all the policies in this company, okay? Uh, you know, tell me what you think good policies in the company look like from an employee perspective, from a customer perspective, how we engage shareholders. What does that look like? Say, third, you know, thing, what's your system? What's your routine for running the organization? And, you know, if somebody's a good CEO, they'll say, look, we have a, you know, nine o'clock meeting on every Monday that covers these areas. I do one-on-ones with my staff this time. I do an annual review process with them every quarter, yada, yada, yada. You know, if they're not, if they're coming out of a big sales job or something, they'll say, oh, you know, I, I work really hard with the team. I try to be collaborative. I build consensus. <laughs> yeah, you know, it. what the heck does that mean? I yeah. mean, you know, and so you're looking for specificity in, yeah. in these areas. You know, how have you made your another favorite question? How have you made any of your employees better in the last year? Uh, because if the CEO, if the executive is a good coach and improving employees, they'll be able to tell you stories of how they've, improve employees performance over the last year. So that that's was awesome. Just, those, <laughs> I love it. Just, I mean, yeah, I can just tell, I mean, like I'm laughing because I'm like, Oh my gosh, if had I asked a couple of those questions instead of the ways, or had I been watching for the responses that you just described, I'm just like thinking, Oh my God, did I get those bullshit responses? <laughs> General specificity. And I learned this kind of backwards. I used to have a, uh, I once interviewed 252 people in one year to hire a hundred people. So when you do that, you get pretty good at this, right? Yeah. You figure out kind of what works and what doesn't work. And, and early on, uh, I had a, a PR person come into my office. I distinctly remember, and I'd never hired a PR person before. And I had been 
you know, back-to-back meetings that day. And usually I'd write down five or six questions that I wanted to make sure and was prepared. And I, I really wasn't prepared at all. You know, <laughs> walked in and sat down and, and PR people, you know, tend to be very put together and, you know, rehearsed and they, you know, that the, they understand the value of communication and all this. So she was clearly prepared. And I just looked at her and said, you know, sorry, I don't know anything about PR. I've never hired a PR person. I really didn't have time to look at your resume. Tell me what makes a good PR person. And they spent about five minutes in amazing, simple detail, laying out everything that made a good PR person, how she thought about PR, the things she would do in the first 30 days, things she would do in the first 90 days. She was five minutes in. I said, you're hired. (laughs) That's awesome. Yeah. And what I realized is people who are really good at something, not only are they good at it, but they've thought a lot about it. I I got a chance one time to go play golf with Tom Watson. Super guy, you know, was very excited to go play golf with Tom Watson, right? So we fly up, we meet Tom Watson in the hangar. Tom Watson's talking about golf. We go ride to the course, Tom Watson's talking about golf. We hit balls in the range, Tom Watson's talking about golf. We go play six holes, Tom Watson's talking about golf. We get through playing, we have lunch. He does a presentation, tells stories about golf. By that time, I was tired of talking about golf, you know, because, I mean, golf's fun, but it's not, I'm not passionate about golf in the same way Tom Watson is. But you don't get to be one of the best golfers ever because you spend most of your time thinking about something else. Right. And it's the same thing in business. You don't get to be one of the best PR people because you spend all your time riding horses. You 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 get to be one of the best PR people because you love talking about PR. You've thought about it a lot. You're uh, in tune with the industry and you can answer those kind of questions with great specificity. The You know, you bring in a sales guy and he says, you say, how do you sell? You say, oh, you know, I just don't take no for an answer. I pound the phones. That's not a good sales guy. A good sales guy says, I've looked at your industry. I've divided it into three core segments. I think we need to attack. I would go hit these 20 customers. I'd start with this marketing program. I'd then follow up with a phone call. Then I'd go visit, you know, whatever, right? They're very specific about what they need to do. And so that's one of the ways to detect, even though you may know nothing about a topic, if if they can't explain it to a, you know, Richard Feynman, the famous, if you can't explain it to an eight-year-old, you don't understand it. Mm-hmm. And so the people you're interviewing should be able to ex- explain their job in great detail if they're portraying themselves as an expert. I absolutely love that. And I think it, it, that's literally tying right back to one of your earlier statements about their ability, their meaning the executive's ability to predict the future. Yes. Right. I mean, so they're generally specific about how they're going to predict the future and what they're going to do versus they have a plan versus (laughs) camaraderie and pound. (laughs) I love it. I know we're uh, rounding out to the end here. Uh, Joel, this has been honestly just a blast because this is, this is something that I, it's gotta be almost every single one of our clients or the people that have come on here. They haven't figured out how to successfully hire a CEO to do this job that you're talking about. Therefore, and here's where I, I I I get so bummed because the results are of that they sell the business because they're too exhausted and the anxiety is there, or they're not gonna sit there like they might want not want to do an ESOP and take a seller's note at twelve percent, you know, for two thirds of it sure. because they're terrified the plan's not gonna get executed and the money's not gonna get returned. Yeah. And it's like that's the there's hiring a CEO and building a business like this is like the best way to have your backup plan, which is it kicks off a bunch of money. And you can go do whatever the hell you want while your company is managing itself. I mean, people haven't been able to clearly say, 
here's how I'm going to do this and have confidence. You know, it's that lack of confidence. And I've watched this right now because of the out of the blue offers that are coming out from private equity and the money that's sloshing around people that are really confident are going, Oh, well, actually I would sell for the money for these reasons, because there's an out, there's a trap door versus going, no, look at my five-year plan. That that offers nowhere close to our five-year plan. And so I just, I think you have clearly and actually given people things to think about that, I mean, I think there's enough anxiety out there on this topic that people should be doing whatever they can to figure out how to solve this problem. Sure. Yeah. You know, be happy to engage with your listeners. They can go to joeltrammell.com and give us, give us the book, the the links, everything like that. We can put it in the show notes and everybody can look at it. If uh, the the book's the CEO tightrope, and then we're going to release probably early uh, or at the end of this year or early next year, uh, a book on management that kind of puts a system around management as well. So people can understand that very important in your organization as it grows to build a consistent management system. Uh, And then uh, I do a lot of my uh, material through joeltrammell.com. We offer an assessment. You can go look at uh, uh, and take the assessment on kind of where your business is and where you are as a CEO. And, uh, you know, certainly uh, uh, love to engage with people who are dealing with these kind of issues. I love it. Joel, one last question for you. Um, forgot to ask you earlier is uh, your definition of the word intentional. Intentional. Like if you were to go back to your, your former self, call it 20 years old or something, you say, this is what intentional means. How would you describe it to yourself? Hmm. Yeah, uh, I think, you know, thoughtfully having created a rational approach. Uh, you know, I see a lot of people that have intentions, uh, but there's no thought. <laughs> there's some <laughs> random, random, you know, I want to be a billionaire. Okay. That's, that's, that is that's not great. being intentional. Uh, that's dreaming, uh, hopes and dreams. And uh, one of the things that entrepreneurs really fundamentally do is convert hopes and dreams to rational plans. Uh, I like it. Joel, this has been an absolute blast. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Glad to be with you, Ron. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed that episode. Here's my huge takeaway and why I've sent this episode to so many people is if you want to be the owner that truly has choices with what to do with your financial asset and the business that is your financial asset, and your job and your management role, which is a different thing, which is your income that you get for the duties that you do in your business, you have to understand how to hire the right people and then manage them. And my biggest takeaway was if you can hire the people that have the ability to plan and predict the future and increase and have the highest degree of in of accuracy, excuse me, the highest degree of accuracy of predicting that future, you're gonna actually have anxiety that goes away because you believe in the plan that you're about to accomplish and you don't have to hit that escape hatch and sell the company because you don't believe in the plan that you have. Take the time to figure out what it's going to take to hire the right people for the right spots at the top level of the organization and you're truly going to buy your freedom and peace of mind back and create options and a more valuable business all at once. As long as you can afford these people and as long as you can take the time and have the patience to find the right people, your life will be completely different. I've done it at our old family business and I know it's possible because I watch it all day long and this episode gave the clear articulation of what it means to find the right people and what it takes to have success. 
Thanks for tuning in. If you want to understand the things that you need to be a better owner, go check out our intentional growth training. Go to arcona.io and you'll see a bunch of videos of Pat and I explaining what's in the training and the curriculum. And if you got any questions, feel free to reach out. Thanks for tuning in and I will see you next week.